When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these uh, family members of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes. You did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And this is the third of three stories revolving around this similar theme of the end. Now, since no one has experienced the end before, Jesus compares it in the first two stories to things that people have experienced or are at least familiar with. Uh, they know that grooms can, be, can keep bridal parties waiting and, as described in the second story, that landowners, after they return from long journeys, settle accounts with their staff. And Jesus is saying, the end is kind of like that. Now this story, it differs from the other two. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it's not really a parable. Um, it's not a story about something familiar that resembles the end. It is uh, a story about the end itself. It is a story about the Son of Man. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the Son of Man is the title that Jesus gives himself. And because we're familiar with it, we may not realize that when Jesus uses this title, he's not say, saying, giving him, himself, giving him a title that his audience would be like, oh, did he, did he just call himself the Son of Man? Well, that must mean he's the Messiah, or it must mean he's the Son of God, or the second person of the Trinity. No, um, 
It is a title that appears in the Old Testament, but most of the time, it just means human being. But nowhere does Jesus make clear that the Son of Man is more than just a, another run-of-the-mill homo sapien than, than in this passage here. Because he's saying, when the Son of Man comes again, he does so in glory. How glorious? Well, it says there is this glorious arrival, and then, and all the angels are with him. So having the whole heavenly host in tow, that's not the glory. That's just in addition to the glory. It's just a feature. It's sort of the uh, ornate frame that goes uh, around the, what it, the featured artwork, right? The glorious portrait. And now he sits on the throne of glory. So this is a glorious scene. And then what, what the Son of Man does is to you know, separate the people as a uh, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. Now, what Jesus says after this it's another one of these stories where you could say, okay, this is telling us how it is we get into the kingdom, how we earn our way into the kingdom. It's a story about how we, what we have to do in order to make the cut, to pass muster, earn our keep. Okay, we have to feed the hungry, uh, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned, and so forth. But as I was saying last week, to, to see it primarily as a story about how you get in is really kind of, it misses the point. That is a secondary concern. Because one of the things that the story makes clear is that the, the so-called sheep, uh, they haven't done what they did with that in mind, right? That, that's why they are surprised. When Jesus says, oh, when you did, did the least of me, it's done unto me. You know, they're as confused by or baffled as, as the goats, right? So they're all, they're so, they don't, don't want to get it. Now, why don't they get it? Well, I think that is a pointer back to the emphasis I was just uh, making, that this is a scene of glory, right? And so it's Lord. When did we see you, right? I, I'm quite sure I'd recall bumping into someone whose grandeur makes the entire heavenly host just a side note. So it's first and foremost a story about the kingdom itself, what it is, how it works, and not how you get into it. And what it's saying about the kingdom is that it operates very differently than kingdoms operate down here. Uh, for instance, I was recently listening to a three-part podcast uh, about Leonard Leo. 
And Leonard Lee is a remarkable, remarkably driven person. He graduated from, the, from law school in the 80s. And ever since then, he has worked tirelessly uh, to build a network of like-minded lawyers, politicians, and judges, as well as to raise a good deal of money. And throughout most of that time, he himself has remained behind the scenes. I mean, I, I hadn't heard of Leo Leonard. Uh, if you have heard of him, it's because only recently he has become in the, uh, he came into the news because this network of, uh, of politicians and lawyers and judges uh, and this money has enabled him to have an incredible amount of influence. And that was evidenced when uh, President Trump had to fill the first Supreme Court seat. And he said, I have this list of 10 names given to me by the Federalist uh, Society, which is uh, associated with Leo Leonard. So, so now he's having influence oh, uh, in terms of who gets to be on the Supreme Court. And, and that is just the beginning. I mean, they have worked on the state level and there are instances in which the governor of Missouri uh, you know, did not appoint the person to a court that uh, Leo Leonard wanted him to appoint. And as a result, that, that governor couldn't, didn't bother running for re-election because it was, you know, he was no longer good with that network. So, I mean, it's that's what that shows is if you want to have power and influence, build connections with people of, who have power and influence and mass money. But it's, that's just how, that's how the, the kingdoms of this world works. Uh, advancing your cause requires building a network of individuals with influence and being well-funded. And it's not just political or judicial systems that work, work that way. Um, you know, part of the pitch to Allie when we went to the U of M is they're like, we have this incredible alumni network. It's one of the biggest in the world. And you hear story after story of, hey, you have uh, of somebody saying, you know, I, this person was a fellow uh, U of M grad and I reached out to them and, and I got a great job after, after graduation. Um, and even now, there's part of the work Allie has to do is these coffee chats or whatever, and she's supposed to have sort of begin to make connections and form networks of people uh, with influence. And I'm not saying that there's, so I'm not saying there's anything inherently evil about networking, about connecting to people with influence. That's simply how this world works. Uh, I think, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for all these conspiracy theories that are kind of exploding all over the, the country about the deep state or Hollywood elites who, you know, cannibalize babies or whatever. I mean, I, but I think part of what's behind that is there's just this realization by people who don't feel they have those connections. They kind of, they've invented this sort of funhouse mirror version of the way the world actually does work. There are people in power, and if you're connected to that, you have a lot of, you have advantages. All right. Anyway, what we learn in this passage is that the kingdom of God does not play by those rules. Uh, the people who are connected to this glorious scene are not the people we'd expect. 
They aren't people with power and influence. The people with whom you build your network, who are likely to help you advance your career goals. They don't have influence, they have needs. They don't have power, they have vulnerability. At least, that's how they appear to us. But what this story is saying is that these, the least of these, are in fact very well connected. They make up part of the sheep state. You know, I was saying to myself after I said that joke, I'd say, John, ah, don't use that first, but can't resist. Sheep state, get it? Okay, moving on. The one, the, the, the son of man, the one who sits on the throne of glory on judgment day, surrounded by angels, declares these losers, these, the least of these, he says, this is family. So close that what you do for them, you did for me. What sort of kingdom is this? Why does it operate this way? Well, you know, uh, recently I was, uh, see, I saw that the, the, the miniseries Chernobyl, and I was like, hey, Jim, should, should we watch this? I heard this is good, this, this miniseries called Chernobyl. I said, or, or do you think it's too grim? And she kind of looked at me like I'm an idiot, like, oh, really? You think it might be grim? So anyway, uh, but then she went to Arizona. I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this thing. And I called her. I'm like, yeah, it, it is grim. And she what would you think? Well, I thought it was a musical. No, I didn't think it was a musical. Anyway, uh, it is, but it is an unbelievable series. And what this, it makes clear, and what I had no appreciation for before seeing the series, was just how close, how close we were to a catastrophe that could have wiped out most of Eastern Europe. Now, the main reason we were that close, of course, is because uh, you know, the nuclear reactor blew up and there was this relentless deluge of radioactivity being released, uh, they said like two Hiroshima's every hour. But the other reason we were so close was inherent to the Soviet system. Because the Soviets were determined. They were determined to protect its image of strength and security at all costs. So when that initial explosion occurred, it was downplayed, right? And it was as important to make sure that the news of the disaster didn't get spread as it was important to actually take care of the disaster. So rather than evacuating everybody, they made sure nobody left town to, to spread what they were saying were lies about the disaster. Now, thank God for the, the scientists who insisted that Gorbachev and the, the Central Committee confront the truth. I mean, million, millions of lives were saved. But having to deal with the truth did bankrupt the Soviet Union. I mean, that uh, Chernobyl was as much the cause of the end of the Soviet Union as anything. So the kingdom of God stands in contrast to this and all other kingdoms of our world. And we see that not only in this story that Jesus tells, but we see it 
in what follows in, in the next chapter of Matthew. Because the next chapter, after these stories of the end, is the story of how they try to put an end to that storyteller. It's the beginning of the plot to kill Jesus. Uh, you know, by midway through the chapter, uh, uh, Judas is getting paid off in order to betray Jesus. And of course, we all know what happens from there. And, and it's there that Jesus really demonstrates how this kingdom works. Because when he's put on trial, and they're, they're, they're making these ridiculous charges that have no bearing in reality, he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't try to protect his image of power and, and security. On the contrary, he's silent. Pilate sees this and he's thinking, man, are you just, you just giving up? Look, I'm well connected. I have influence. I have power. You know, work with me here and maybe I can get you off. I could save your life. But the problem is that Pilate, it's not that Jesus is, is, has misread this, read this situation, it's that Pilate has. Jesus is secure within this other kingdom. Uh, you know, he doesn't see this as a Chernobyl. This isn't a catastrophe that is going to bankrupt his kingdom. In fact, this is how the kingdom is going to demonstrate the extent of its power. What Jesus demonstrates through the cross is that at the heart of the universe, at the heart of the universe, is a nuclear reactor of love. And what, if it is, when it is unleashed, it does not bring death, it brings life. It defeats death. It brings life eternal, life abundantly. So our passage is not telling us a story about how the sheep managed to uh, get in the kingdom. It is a story about how the kingdom has managed to get inside some sheep. Because they, their glory that they are encountering here at the end, it is, it is beyond what they can imagine, beyond what they could have understood. But they did have some sense of the power that is behind all that glory. That they had some sense of that, the, 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 the nuclear reactor of love, and they, that was a source of their power. They allowed that to fuel their own way of living in the world. And they didn't just engage people's potential contacts. They, didn't, they weren't always looking to work the angles. They, were, they weren't always about building a network of power and influence. They, they, in fact, it was in their relationships with people who had none of that sort of potential that they understood, they encountered the power of that kingdom. It was with the vulnerable, the marginalized, that the power of love gave them a glimpse of glory. It's in those relationships that they, knew, that they realized that they were rubbing elbows with the king. You know, our, our culture is determined to have us have sort of a goat mentality, to evaluate everyone and everything in terms of, all right, what's in it for me? And it is hard to resist. It sure appears to have 
a lot to offer, right? I mean, these are the lies that our kingdom is built on. You know, and so in that sense, we're not all that different from the Soviet Union. And in fact, it, we're so convincing about it. It's hard to believe that there may be a better offer than to operate in that way. And that's not unique to our age. In fact, every kingdom uh, offers that same sort of lie. And in the epistle reading today, that's assigned today, Paul is writing to a people that he is, he prays will not buy into that lie and that they will know what lies at the center of the universe. Here's, here's what Paul says. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. As my prayer for you, as my prayer for myself. I pray that it might be answered in us, and that we may operate out of that power, out of those riches, with anyone and everyone we meet.